0: Hello, and welcome to On the Nose, a podcast from Jewish Currents. I'm Alex Kane, the senior reporter at Jewish Currents, and I'm also your guest host today, taking over hosting duties temporarily from editor-in-chief Ariel Angel. The past six months have been tumultuous in the occupied West Bank. In May, the attempted displacement of Palestinian families in the East Jerusalem neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah and the subsequent Israeli assault on Gaza sparked protests throughout the West Bank during which Israeli soldiers shot and killed 26 Palestinians, including 11 people killed on a single day, on May 14th, which was the highest number of Palestinian fatalities in a single day since the UN started documenting casualties in 2005. In June, Nizar Banat, a critic of Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, was killed by Palestinian security forces. That led to another round of protests, this time directed at Abbas himself. Meanwhile. A new Israeli government was sworn into office, Israel's settlement enterprise continued to grow, and Israeli settler violence against Palestinians in the West Bank has spiked once again, as it does every year during the olive harvest. To talk about all of this and more, I'm happy to be joined by Dalia Hatuka and Fadi Quran. Dalia is a journalist who specializes in, in Palestinian and Israeli affairs. She recently wrote the piece, A Prison Break Liberates the Palestinian Political Imagination for Jewish Currents. And Fadi is an activist and a senior campaigner at Avaz, where he leads counter-disinformation efforts with a focus on investigating influence operations and pushing for social media platform accountability. Fadi and Dalia, welcome to On The Nose. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. So Dalia, I'm going to begin with a quite general question. What exactly is the Palestinian Authority and what is its relationship to Israel and Hamas, the group that rules Gaza?
1: The Palestinian Authority is a byproduct of the Oslo Accords um, that were signed between the Israelis and uh, the PLO in 1993. Um, The idea of the Palestinian Authority, or the idea behind it rather, is to have uh, this interim um, government that would uh, govern specific areas uh, while paving the way for the Palestinians to take over the West Bank and Gaza, um, eventually. Now, this never happened. Of course, uh, many people are aware of uh, the Intifada, uh, the Second Intifada and the aftermath of that, the Israelis pretty much showed their true colors and uh, they decided that um, that they're not having any of that. The idea of having a Palestinian state as stipulated in the Accords uh, was never realized. And so uh, the PA right now is pretty much a provider of jobs for many people, many Palestinians in the West Bank. Its relationship, the PA's relationship with Hamas is um, not very good to say the least. Uh, Fateh, which, um, which is the, the party uh, that um, the PA is comprised of mainly, has been at loggerheads with Hamas for a very long time and the reasons being um, really about uh, territory and about power, uh, with neither parties willing to give up either of these things. And so uh, the Palestinians have been left with this kind of situation where they're divided like both uh, geographically and physically and also politically. Uh, but also the PA has has been accused of being a vehicle so to speak for or a tool for the Israelis to crack down on um, anyone who it, who is basically against the PA or against Israel itself. So for example, um, you would see that a lot of uh, protests that happen at uh, Uh, flashpoints like uh, by uh, settlements or by um, uh, checkpoints, a lot of the times the PA cracks down on that. Or when there are uh, protests that happen inside West Bank cities, the PA cracks down on those. So um, I think the last uh, or the latest poll that I've seen um, showed that Approximately maybe 80% or more, I could be wrong, but this is what I remember, is uh, is 80% or more of Palestinians are basically calling for the PA's uh, president, Mahmoud Abbas, to step down. Uh, ultimately, you know, Palestinians are left in the situation where they're being governed, so to speak, quote unquote, um, by a party that they don't approve of and— uh, and also Palestinians in Gaza don't uh, really approve of Hamas either.
0: Ifadi, um, let's pick up on that thread because, as Dalia mentioned, um, 78% of Palestinians uh, said that they want Abbas to resign in, in a recent poll. Uh, and of course, Abbas has been in office since 2005. So he was elected to what, a four-year term? I mean, why is he still in office? How is he still in office? And also, why are so many Palestinians displeased with him?
2: Those are those are all good questions. So let's start with why he is in office. Um, Mahmoud Abbas came to power after the the death of Yasser Arafat, and the way he came to power was within the old leadership, the old guard, the founders of Fatah. He was one of the the only remaining um, old guard members, and at the same time. Mahmoud Abbas had gained the support both of the U.S. administration at that time, the George Bush administration, and he was acceptable to um, Ariel Sharon and and the Israeli leadership at the time. And in in that period as well, um, as Zalia mentioned in the Second Intifada, Palestinian society had almost been crushed, right? Thousands of people killed, the economy had collapsed. And so there were elections. And interestingly, in, in the presidential elections, no one of significance and uh, no one from any other large major Palestinian party really ran against Mahmoud Abbas. And, and the Fatah leadership, um, fearing that they were losing power, especially that they had lost elections to Hamas on the municipal level, um, essentially all supported him. So he won the presidential elections. Um, but then... Uh, almost less than a year later, um, of course, Fatih lost the Palestinian Legislative Council elections that were more competitive in terms of the diversity of those running. But Mahmoud Abbas began to utilize the, the security support, the military support, the cooperation with the Israeli side to essentially consolidate his power through different forms of you know, repression, through different forms of of use of force through arresting opposition, and also through using financial aid coming from the international community to build a type of rent rentier crony system, uh, but that you know hundreds of thousands of Palestinians relied on in terms of the PA wages, and that's so that's how Mahmoud Abbas came to power. Now why why he is still in power, um, and and what has been happening since, and why are Palestinians so Frustrated by him. Centrally, Mahmoud Abbas has, the best way to put this is he has been a failure. He has failed to unite the Palestinian people. He has failed in pursuing any type of effective liberation tactic to end the military occupation. He has failed to improve um, infrastructure. He has failed to improve equality. He has Instead of fixing the legal system and the judicial system, he has corrupted it, putting in place judges that are completely loyal to him. Um, He has disbanded the Palestinian parliament, um, so there is no legislative council at the moment. He has weakened the Palestinian Liberation Organization. There's, you know, truth be told, uh, if you look at the key things that Palestinians want, uh, whether vis-a-vis their li- struggle for liberation um, and an end to the occupation or simply their day-to-day lives, he has been um, a failure at all those levels. And at the same time, he has been um, the head of a corrupt system where, you know, uh, his sons, Mahmoud Abbas's sons, um, one of them runs one of or ran one of the key advertising agencies in, in the West Bank and Gaza uh, that received hundreds of thousands of dollars from USAID and um, significant investments in real estate uh, using their kind of power and leverage and, and through their friends and networks to to just amass um, small fortunes. So there's really, you know, the question, honestly, when, when the poll came out, and it showed that there were, you know, 21 percent of Palestinians were happy with Mahmoud Abbas. Everyone was asking, like, who the hell are those, you know, to, to be completely frank,
0: not the other way around. It's sort of tongue in cheek question, but were those the 21 percent, you know, employees of the PA themselves? I mean, I maybe probably not, though, because a lot of the West Bank sort of benefits from the largesse of the PA. Right. So, I mean, even I imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, that there are workers who work for the PA, obviously for employment, that are still fed up with the actual rule of of Abbas.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I think Dalia can also speak to this. But my short answer is, you know, the the 21% are largely those that profit from the status quo. So I've been meeting with uh, a certain subsection of Palestinian businessmen. And um, one of the things Abbas has done is that he has passed through presidential decree over 41, which means he can legislate just as president without any parliament. At least 41 laws that benefit, um, you know, big business and kind of Palestinian, the, the rich uh, sides of Palestinian society. And then another thing is that the, especially the younger generation of Palestinian security forces, are are being trained. And and this one that was arrested um, about a month ago or so. Became very clear. We're being trained to think that the if Mahmoud Abbas leaves, if this leadership structure collapses, then they will lose uh, their jobs. Then you know people will be spitting at them in the street. And so, apart from people just kind of profiting from the status quo, there are individuals that are actually being disinformed and misinformed to believe that without Mahmoud Abbas. Um, their lives will be over. So that's probably who the 21% consists of, those profiting from corruption and the and few who have been misinformed about, you know, the other options if Mahmoud Abbas is gone. But Dalia, maybe you also have insight on that.
1: Um, I mean, I would imagine that, first of all, you know, p- polls aren't always the most accurate of things. The 21% could be people who are you know, afraid to speak their mind. Or like Fadi said, you know, it could be people who um, are benefiting from the status quo because there are, uh, there is, there exists um, a small group of people who have benefited from um, the PA, be, be it um, the tight uh, circle around Mahmoud Abbas, like his, you know, right-hand men or the people uh, PLO executive committee or um, the uh, high-ranking officials from Fatah, I mean, ultimately, uh, these guys, you know, they, they've, they have what they need. They have everything that they need. So why would they want the status quo to, to change in any way, you know?
0: Yeah. And, and both of you mentioned, you know, the sort of support um, that Abbas had the support of the Israelis when he came into power. And so I just wanted to break down what is Abbas's both historical and current relationship uh, to Israel? Because I think people may be confused. They're like, oh, I thought Palestinians fight with Israel or that they're they're locked in a, a conflict or that there's these two sides, the Israelis and the Palestinians, and both leaderships are at loggerheads. But both of you mentioned that Abbas is favored by Israel.
2: The way I would kind of go about answering this question, because there are a lot of hidden details, but what we can say kind of for for certainty is that number one, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, of all um, Palestinian leaders, actually from from the kind of 70s and 80s, has had this position where he believes the Palestinian people are generally weak and that the only path to um, liberation and he's, he's written this, um, and he said it in his h- historical speeches in the archives, that the only path to liberation is essentially um, making the superpowers at the time, the Soviet Union and the U.S., um, and then later just the U.S., happy. And so Mahmoud Abbas's thinking has been, well, how do you make the Americans happy? Well, the Americans want us to protect the security of Israel. So I'm open to that. I will allow American generals and, and even Israeli generals to work with the Palestinian security forces of their choosing to train them to protect Israel's security as a priority. then um, Mahmoud Abbas's kind of key strategy has been, because he believes in the weakness, again, of Palestinian people per se, his strategy has been, well, what can I do in terms of increasing the the kind of day-to-day benefits from the Israeli side? And that has led to Mahmoud Abbas building relations. And starting from, you know, I'd say the 90s, again, Mahmoud Abbas was a key figure in the Oslo agreements, right? And this is also important to note. There were other Palestinian grassroots leaders Hanan Ashrawi, Haider Abdel Shafi, that were more respected, that were trying to negotiate a better agreement than Oslo in Madrid. But then Mahmoud Abbas came in through the Oslo Accords and was the key person that negotiated a subpar agreement with the Israelis. But from that moment, the, the kind of Israeli leadership felt like, okay, this is a person we can cooperate with, this is a person we can mold, this is a person who is not willing to truly resist us, but is is very thirsty to simply engage with us. And, and that's how Mahmoud Abbas, even though his rhetoric can sometimes be, um, you know, strong in terms of talking about liberation, etc., his day-to-day policies are all about appeasing, um, you know, those in power. So what I would say is, you know the the question. Of course, you know some Palestinians would claim because Mahmoud Abbas actually meets with the head of Israeli interior intelligence, Tisha Shabak consistently, and it's public knowledge. Some Palestinians go as far as to say he's a you know traitor. That's that's unclear. But what is clear is that he functionally acts as a as a Uncle Tom in in the context of Palestinian politics, and that's why he's so favored.
0: Dalia, how would you, with that context in mind, how would you explain? The moves by Abbas to threaten to, or, or actually, it wasn't. A, I don't think it was just a move. I think it was a a a, a decision to pursue Israel in the International Criminal Court, um, which has become a bone of contention between the Biden administration and the Palestinian Authority. Biden pressuring the PA to to back off. Where, how should we understand that in the context of what Fadi was saying?
1: I think um, one word behind this is. that comes to mind is desperation and uh, a lack of strategy, a lack of long-term strategy. And also the PA's um, way of thinking uh, and its actions are reactionary. So they don't think of things ahead of time. So ultimately, I think that when this happened, when uh, Abbas decided to go to the ICC, I don't remember exactly what uh, the, the backdrop was, but this is something that Abbas does all the time. You know, the last time um, something similar happened was when he decided to call off uh, the security coordination. And then, you know, I don't know if it was weeks or months, but he went back to it, and he gave like a really silly reason for going back to it. Like n- no one really believed what he was saying. Uh, nobody believed that going back to security coordination, uh, resuming uh, security coordination with the Israelis was, was anything that they wanted. And by no one, I mean Palestinians. And um, this is something that the, the PA does, you know. Um, it, it's, they basically quash dissent they hunker down to ride out the popular outrage, and then they attempt to placate uh, Palestinians with false promises, promises and empty gestures. So, um, you know, the, the most recent of these gestures was, um, I believe it was like August 29th, end of August. Uh, there was that rare meeting between Abbas and Benny Gantz, the Israeli defense minister in Ramallah. And it was um, the I want to say the first such interaction between Abbas and a senior Israeli official in more than a decade, and the result was you know a bunch of confidence-building measures quote unquote. But the measures you know didn't were not up to par at all. They they included a one hundred um, more than one hundred fifty million dollar loan to the PA. Um, I think the, the, the thing that, you know, was important that came out of this meeting was the resumption of uh, family reunu- reunification for Palestinian families, not all of them, obviously, um, just maybe several thousand out of tens of thousands, uh, and allowing, like, more Palestinian day workers into Israel, even reviving the peace process that that has never brought the Palestinians anything of substance was, was not even discussed. And, you know, and, and we were told that um, the prime minister of Israel, Bennett, uh, you know, he told Haaretz at the time, I, I believe he said, that there is no diplomatic process with the Palestinians and there'll, there'll never be one. Uh, so, you know, because the PA is so short-sighted, they remain willing to accept whatever bone Israel throws its way and, and this is kind of a segue to my next point, which is basically another attempt by the PA to appease the public, and, and this also shows how short-sighted they are, is that the PA is aiming to hold local council elections in villages and towns sometime between December 10th and December 20th. And again, the PA is mis- misreading the public sentiment because the Palestinians wanted those elections to be the presidential and the legislative elections that were supposed to happen in the spring and the summer. But of course, uh, Abbas decided to uh, call them off because uh, they spelled an uncertain future for Fatah and for Abbas himself.
0: Let's talk more about those elections because I, I think they're significant and the moves that Abbas made to cancel them were significant. Um, Obviously, that was sort of the big story in Israel-Palestine, you know, in the spring until, of course, the Israeli assault on Gaza in May. But, But I think in the month before that, Abbas canceled those elections. What did Abbas say as to why he was canceling the elections and what were the real reasons behind it?
2: So the the excuse that President Abbas gave was that Israel was preventing or banning um, elections in Jerusalem and that the PA couldn't go ahead with um, legislative and presidential elections without Jerusalem, uh, which on its face is actually an important position. The problem is, you know, there are ways to get around Israel's ban of having elections and having kind of the the electoral campaign run in Jerusalem. One way that was proposed by many of the independent lists was we don't need Israel's permission. We can, you know, this is like a, a one man, one vote protest situation where we can force Israel's hands by just running elections in Jerusalem and finding solutions around it. Some people proposed, you know, electronic ballots um, they were, you know, and, and I don't want to get into the details, but simply to say that sounds like a good excuse. In fact, it's no excuse at all. And so that's that's what Mahmoud Abbas said. The real reason is that Fatah, as the leading party, had splintered into three factions. Mahmoud Abbas is Fatah, and then you had Marwan Barghouti, who's who's kind of the most popular Fatah leader, who's been in prison for over twenty years now. Um, and then you had Dahlan, who's probably the richest Fatah leader, who has the support of the UAE and the Egyptian government. Um, so there were three Fatah factions, and it was clear from the polling that Mahmoud Abbas's Fatah could, you know, get the smallest of those lists, or but and definitely not win. And on the other hand, you had, you know, Hamas and, and other political parties. You also had, and this is an interesting point, you had, um, I believe it was 29 Independent lists, so basically new parties with new individuals and new younger faces. In in some cases, that were also running. So the calculation that happened internally for Mahmoud Abbas was simply that if we have elections, it looks like I'm going to lose, and and you know Fatah may be divided as a as a consequence. And secondly, that, you know, that will show that I am even more illegitimate than than the world already sees me. And then the third point for him was actually the the U.S. administration, at least based on, you know, what PA officials have told me, is that the U.S. administration, seeing that the results may lead to uh, losing Mahmoud Abbas and and losing this kind of power balance that exists within the, the Palestinian areas, actually told Mahmoud Abbas that they were not too worried about elections and that he could move ahead um, and and cancel them without any significant repercussions. And then last but not least, also, uh, this was leaked, but the head of the Israeli general intelligence, Tashabak, also visited Ramallah with Mahmoud Abbas and, and gave him the same synopsis, which is, better for you not to have elections because you are going to lose. And so that's what led to to him you know, basically saying, well, if the Israelis and Americans um, are on my side and there are no heavy costs, I'm just going to go ahead and cancel and tell people that I canceled for the sake of Jerusalem. When in reality, he canceled because he doesn't want to lose his seat.
0: I wanted to talk about Nizar Banat because his death captured a lot of international attention. Um, Dalia, um, The killing of Nizar Banat by Palestinian Authority Security Forces set off protests. Um, Could you explain who Banat was? uh, Why was he killed and and what was the reaction to his death?
1: So Nizar Banat was was a fierce critic of the PA. Um, He was from Hebron. Um, He had... um, He used to do all these like really fiery speeches, uh, mostly on Facebook and uh, people related to him because, you know, they felt like he spoke to them. He talked about the PA's corruption, nepotism, cronyism, you know, what have you. And um, he knew he could tell that the PA was not going to sit by and let him be and, and let him, you know, talk about all these issues uh, that people relate to. And so I believe he was at, uh, it was in June, if I'm not mistaken, sensing that the PA was going to go after him. He was staying at a relative's house in Hebron. And uh, what happened was the PA security forces entered this area. This area is under... Israeli security control. So the PA security forces had to have um, coordinated with the Israelis in order to go into this area. So that's a point that maybe we can come back to later, but it's an important point. Anyway, so they took him. Uh, They, according to the um, reports, basically, um, he was beaten up there was uh, some secure, uh, There was some footage that showed up as well, um, showing that they beat him up. They pe- beat him like with their hands. They beat him with like uh, the the guns. Uh, they maced him and um, basically they killed him. And it it took three months. Three months for um, what I would call a sham of a of a trial to begin. Uh, I went to it, actually. It was, um, I think it was on September 14th. And uh, the PA court, you know, held its uh, first hearing for 14 security forces that were accused of being involved in his killing. All of them are members of the preventative security apparatus. Uh, This is the internal intelligence agency, which is responsible for... um, addressing uh, domestic political dissent, and it's grown to become one of the most powerful arms of the PA security forces, but it's also known for its detention and human rights abuses of Palestinian dissidents. And the thing that struck me the most uh, was that most of these guys were foot soldiers. Uh, The highest-ranking guy was a major, I believe. Uh, A few others were lieutenants. And um, the family uh, of Nizar Banat uh, called this a sham because obviously none of the people who gave any orders, you know, people in, in the higher echelons uh, are, are taking responsibility for what happened. And uh, the last thing I'll mention about this is, is something odd that happened like uh, at the trial is that the lawyer of these guys, the, the soldiers and the lieutenants, he didn't show up. He, he said that he didn't know about the hearing date, uh, that he had seen it on social media, and that he had COVID-19. It was very strange, and even the family's lawyer said it was a bad omen. But um, it just shows you that there, that not just the family, but people, Palestinians, who are watching this trial like closely... Realize that the, there will never be justice for Nizar Banat's family.
0: Banat was that big of a threat? I mean, he was wasn't he kind of like a guy on Facebook, like ranting? I mean, obviously, obviously, he tapped into something, but it's uh, striking that 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 they couldn't even handle that.
1: But, but that's honestly that's the modus operandi of Abbas. He, you know, he he can't handle. He can't handle any kind of dissent, and and he can't handle any kind of criticism. And it, it's been his style even from the days of Yasser Arafat, when he would, uh, you know, the the two would uh, would butt heads, and then uh, Abbas would sulk, and he'd go to Doha, and uh, and then they'd be like, "Yalla, come back," or "Oh, don't worry about it," to Absarshu, you know, like. And, and these aren't stories. This is history. Obviously, I'm making it sound like it's, you know, whatever. It's, uh, it's silly, but it's not. This is his character, and uh, this is his style, and he, he cannot handle anything of the sort. Now, I don't know who gave the orders, obviously, for this killing, but it's an outrage that this man who, who just decided to talk about these things was killed for things that he believed, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and and Fadi, I want to bring you in because you were arrested in August by PA forces during one of those protests after the killing of Banat. I was wondering if you could talk about that experience and, and what you think the arrest of, of you and others shows about the PA.
2: The, the first thing I just want to go back to is, is the power of Nizar Banat in the sense that he was a deeply articulate person, right? He was a, an Arabic teacher, a poet, but also a writer. And he was formerly Fatih. Uh, you know, he had been imprisoned by Arab regimes for being a member of Fatih. And so he knew and could speak to the history of the party, the values of the party, um, the, the mistakes that happened inside the party probably better than anyone else. And that was one of the reasons that he had a diverse amount of supporters that went beyond, you know, the, the like opposition, went beyond the like whether it was leftist or Islamist parties. Um, and so it wasn't simply a person, I would say, that was, you know, just charismatic online, um, spreading videos. It was someone who managed to give Palestinians both an intriguing history lesson about the corruption that has happened and a, a bravery to imagine a better future. And that's why Nizar again decided to run for the Legislative Council. He was leading one of the key independent parties. And, you know, it is a sign of weakness, of course, that the PA felt the need to go down this path. Um, and and assassinate him. Uh, but it is also something that I have to say is terrifying. The reason we went down to the protests is because we're already, as Palestinians, let's remember, the Israeli occupation has Military Order 101, which gives them the right to arrest me for up to two years for having this conversation with you, Alex and Dalia. Um, the Israeli occupation has... Restrictions on assembly, which means that if we go and march in, in the wrong places, we can be arrested for many years. They, they, they have many different ways to silence and crush us. And the fact that we now need to deal with not only the occupation's oppression, but with the PA's willingness to go as far as to assassinate us, to double down as a subcontractor for the occupation, that's, it's not something you know trivial. And Nizar was trying to break that, and that's why the PA decided to, to you know, break him, if not murder him. Now, the reason I was arrested is because the murder of Nizar led to a dramatic rise in, in popular protests. And what the PA tried to do was suppress those protests. And my arrest was, and, and the arrest of activists was the least of it. They harassed young women in the streets sexually. Um, They threatened people with with murder. They beat people, uh, some of them uh, close to death. So what the PA tried to do in this process was literally show that you cannot challenge us in any way or form. Um, I was arrested because a day before my arrest, the PA had um, banned protests in the center of town and arrested anybody who showed up to the, the town center in Ramallah al Manara. So the second day, we we didn't want them to succeed in this battle of controlling the public space. Already, we're in cages as Palestinians within these Area A cities. And if the PA could put us even in smaller cages, which are our homes, taking away public space, it was kind of like a, a death sentence to any form of organizing or activism. So we went back down. We went to a festival that was happening nearby, We raised, um, you know, we we raised images of Nizar. Hundreds of people gave us a standing ovation, right? And it was on live television, which really angered the PA that was trying to silence this work. Now, later after that event, um, two police cars came after me, almost ran into me, and basically took me, beat me a little bit, and then arrested me. They had my picture, as well as pictures and names of uh, I'd say five to 10 other leading organizers on the ground ready so they knew who I was. And when I went into prison, of course, um, horrible treatment, uh, small rooms, we couldn't sleep on our, our backs. We had to sleep you know, on our sides because there were 17 people in a room that was probably 10 feet by 10 feet. Um, so there was no space to sleep comfortably. Um, a bunch of us went on hunger strike and so they punished all the other prisoners to get the the kind of those arrested on criminal charges, not political charges, to abuse us, to stop us from being on hunger strike. But fortunately, the popular um outrage that this caused in Palestine led, led to my release. Um and, and the ironic bit is that, and this shows you how far the PA has gone in terms of its security forces to being a subcontractor for the occupation. I was interrogated, part of my interrogation was why I was carrying 25 Palestinian flags um, as, as evidence that I was doing something illegal. And I, I just had to tell the prosecutor and, and tell the, the security men interrogating me, you know, people went to prison for knitting the Palestinian flag in the '80s, because Israel had made that illegal, and now you come and claim you're a Palestinian authority, and you're arresting someone and and interrogating them for carrying flags. So it just shows you the just our, you know the deep irony uh, that we we are living in. But what I want to end with on this note is just to say. When I spoke with the police officers and I told them, you know, what we stand for and that Mahmoud Abbas and his corruption is is a disgrace, the majority of police officers actually came and apologized to me um, and said that they they have no pride in representing this this regime, but that, you know, again they were afraid of losing their jobs and losing their their incomes. Um, similarly, the prisoners in the cells that I was in, uh, who were, many were there um, unjustly, but they tried to not give them food. They took away all their privileges, assuming they would beat me up in prison or harass me. Instead, all of the, the prisoners that were there in the room with me under criminal charges stood by my side and also spoke about how they wanted the PA to change. So in my experience of this whole arrest and even the days after, what I realized is that literally Mahmoud Abbas and a few people around him are so weak and have lost support of almost all major pillars in society. What people are just waiting for is a vision about how we can replace this Palestinian leadership without being blackmailed, because this is what Mahmoud Abbas does. He tells people, it's either me or chaos. It's either me or bloodshed. And if people just have a vision about how to replace him, and his you know, cabal of bad leaders without any um, kind of significant costs, then he would be gone uh, within minutes.
0: That's intense and, and wild. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're safe now. Um, uh, Dalia, um, I wanted to switch to a, a sort of related but but somewhat separate topic, although it is about Palestinian prisoners, this time Palestinian prisoners in Israel— uh, you wrote a great piece for Jewish Currents about the September um, Palestinian prisoner escape from Israel's Gilboa prison. And um, I just, you know, wanted to, to hear from you. What's your sense of what was the reaction to that escape in the West Bank and then their eventual recapture by Israeli forces?
1: I think when it first happened, there was a lot of euphoria, like the prison break was... Um, uh, a huge symbolic victory, uh, not just over the occupation, but also uh, the occupation's infrastructure. Uh, because as you well know, uh, so many people, there's not like a household uh, in the Palestinian territories that hasn't had like uh, a male uh, a relative or loved one who hasn't been in an in, in Israeli prison. So it, you know, to many people, it was like a a, a thumb in the eye of the Israeli prison service. Um, especially because the Israeli uh, authorities have long said that Gulboa is like, um, you know, is like a, akin to a safe uh, at a bank. Like you, 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 can't, you know, get out of it. Um, I believe. Uh, the IPS once said that the Gilboa's prisoners are like more securely guarded than the money in the Bank of Israel's safes. So you know, there's there was a lot of pride um, uh, that the Israelis had in this prison, and the the uh, prison break was was a, a huge victory over that. The thing is, is that the prisoners themselves and Israel's imprisonment of Palestinians has always been um, a uniting, galvanizing issue, like across the occupied territories. And um, of course, you know, Israelis like to call them terrorists and whatnot. But, you know, for Palestinians, they're political prisoners, they're, you know, rightfully resisting an illegal occupation. Um Um, A lot of Palestinians are in Israeli prisons for uh, things like uh, throwing stones at uh, security forces or uh, membership in political factions that are banned by Israel. Um, I believe that 20% of the total Palestinian population um, has been detained by Israel since 1967, and that's an insane number. Now, when uh, the six were recaptured, it, it was definitely a sad moment that, that, um, that you could sense in, in the West Bank. Like, um, I, I heard a lot of people saying that, you know, their moms cried or, you know, their family was upset. Uh, I remember there was a sign that was going around um, on social media of a store in Ramallah that was like, uh, shut down on a Monday at midday. And it said something like, I'm too depressed to work today. And, and everybody, everybody that I spoke with, you could sense there was this palpable, like anger and disappointment. Um, it, it showed like, not just like on people, you know, on on the street, but like on social media and there, there were like calls for mass protests in the, in, in the West Bank and whatnot, um, but also, I think, you know, the initial feeling of sadness and anger, I think it was translated later on, like with uh, uh, translated into pride and a sense of unity. Um, I think it really like got Palestinians together and it shifted um, the sense of what is possible, which is what I discussed in that um, article for Jewish currents, and um, I think also it showed that that Palestinians uh, are not afraid to resist, and that their resistance uh, stands in sharp contrast with with the strategy of the PA, which has tended to be like more
0: collaborational. Both both of you have sort of sounded some, some notes that are off-key from the generally depressing and awful situation that is in the West Bank. And I did want to give you both an opportunity to add more about if there's anything new or exciting or, or hopeful that's going on uh, right now in, in the West Bank that sort of keeps you going. I think it
2: starts by going beyond also the, the West Bank. And even beyond um, Palestinians, one of the, the wonderful things that we saw in May is that there is a new generation of, of Palestinians and of, of Jews and of progressive Jews who you know probably are a big portion of the audience listening to this podcast that have now gone beyond the nationalistic and um, dogmatic frames of the past into a more aspirational value-based frame that focuses on freedom and justice and dignity for all. And not only is there a generational shift in that direction, but we also saw its ability to, to build power Um, On social media, we saw a shifted narrative. We saw many even younger politicians in in the U.S., but also around the world, shifting their narrative to focus on the need to pursue those values. And on the ground in Palestine, we saw with the assassination of uh, Nizar Banat, may he rest in peace, with the protests that followed, but also before his assassination, with the general strike that happened across Palestine, the ability of these different networks to work together at these pivotal moments to create um, not just beautiful marches and, and efforts on the ground, but significant impact in the way that societies can function together and that is intersectional, that again goes across these kind of nationalistic I- ideals. And so the hope is, right, this is these are seeds, right? These are seeds in soil that is actually very toxic. And for those seeds to actually prosper into the types of movements and organizing that we need to achieve uh, freedom and dignity for all the people living in the Holy Land, we need to take care of them, we need to water them, and we need to recognize that they exist, and we need to protect them from from the harms, whether that's the PA's authoritarianism or Israel's military occupation or the rise of the far, far right in the U.S., Uh, that is both anti-Semitic and also that is extremely pro-current Israeli ethno-nationalist policies. But if we manage to protect these seeds and we build this power and networks, then I have almost certainty that within, you know, 10, 20 years, we can achieve a completely new social contract for Palestinians and Jews um, across the world that actually allows people to simply live a dignified life and, and pursue their potential. And those are the things that are in motion right now. So let's just invest in uh, protecting them, right? And because the key thing is also, and I'll end with this, building this movement, protecting it, making it sustainable and successful is not only beneficial for the people suffering on the ground, it can actually transform the, the Middle East. And if it transforms the Middle East, it can transform the world and ensure that our children and grandchildren live in a much safer, more prosperous, more democratic world for many years to come, and so you know that's that's the hopeful side of things. It's not going to be easy, but it's definitely not impossible either.
1: Uh, I want to add that I'm not as hopeful as Fadi, <laughs> and um, that's fair. I'm not, I'm not as hopeful as Fadi, and um, I really appreciate. Um, hearing him say these things, I, I I would like, you know, to see in my lifetime, like a better future for all of us, for everybody that's living between the river and the sea. Um, I'm just not sure, honestly, like um, maybe being a journalist, like you just tend to be more um, cynical, but um, just to go back to um, the prisoner's escape, I think th- this is part of the reason why um, the escape was so important because it it not only did people sympathize uh, with what the prisoners faced, but also there there was a, a connection uh, to their situation. Even though Palestinians, you know, aren't in a physical prison, we still do live in a prison, you know? Like, uh, and, and this prison isn't something that, Just you know, the Israelis uh, are imposing through uh, checkpoints and whatnot, but also, as um, one really smart person who I was speaking with um, said, it's it's not only Israel that's imposing prison bars; it's the PA that's actually enforcing them. And so, so it's it's this dual system that's working against um, uh, regular Palestinians and. You, you, you've you got, you know, the Palestinian security services, you've got the police, the intelligence services, and there's physical force, there's intimidation. Um, and it's happening from both, uh, and different levels. Obviously, I'm not equating the two, but, um, you know, Israeli the Israeli occupation and the PA. And I think this is why... Uh, the escape like had this enormous effect on people because it pierced Israel's seemingly you know um, impenetrable security and and surve- surveillance network and and it helped the prisoners and through the prisoners, other you know, most Palestinians to evade this domination and and so it gave them a sense of freedom that I think, a lot of people um, that most Palestinians are yearning for, um, and so um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not as hopeful, but I think that that moment uh, that those that week gave people a lot of hope that um, there might be, you know, a light at the end of the tunnel.
0: We're gonna leave it at that. Thank you so much to Dalia and Fadi. Uh, for joining me for this great conversation. And thank you all for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast and rate it so people get to know about it. And as always, subscribe to Jewish Currents and check out our website, jewishcurrents.org. See you next time. Can't get enough Jewish Currents? Keep in touch with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And visit jewishcurrents.org to subscribe and see our latest. A very special thanks to Nathan Salzberg for providing us with the music from his album Landwerk No. 2, and to Santiago Elu Cantero for producing
2: this segment. Thanks for listening. That's all from us.